Turn in your Bibles to John 8. We're going to have some fun on this this morning because we're going to be in a section that shouldn't be in the Bible. <gasps> what? Pastor, I even struggled with preaching it because it's really not Scripture. Now I got your attention, don't I? All right. Well, we'll get to that in a second. Um, I just have a personal thing I want to get to real quickly here. How many of you started a diet? You know you're not going to raise your hand. How many of you started a diet at the beginning of the year? All right. Don't raise your hand if you do. Yeah. How many of you are still on that diet? Just think to yourself personally. Uh, how many of you just succeeded and things are going great? I just have to tell you that Lynn Redlick is an inspiration. This gal has just, she just has nailed it. She's just doing so well. And she taught me, she taught me that, that dieting isn't all about just, you know, removing this. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle change. And I've got so much to learn from, from as I affectionately call her, chief. You know, but I do have a, a problem with the word diet. I have a lot of problems with the word diet. First of all, did anybody notice that the word diet has die in it? Okay? Nobody's really picked up on that yet. It's kind of like, you know, it's a French word. They tried to mask it with French sounds. Diet, right? Diet. You know, here's the, here's the interesting thing about diets. Uh, you know, when I'm having a breakdown day, whatever you want to call it, a bad day, you know, I went way over my points or, you know, whatever, I've got French crullers hanging out in my pockets, whatever. It doesn't help me for you to remind me of my weakness, okay? That is not good. Don't tell me. What are you doing? It's a constant litany at my house, you know. Jericho's like, I have a Pepsi. I'm like, Dad, you're not supposed to drink Pepsi. Give it to me. Thanks. I appreciate that. You need to point me towards freedom. Give me healthy options, right? Rachel over here is helping me learn some healthy options for eating. I went for the first time since 1983. I went to the grocery store and bought vegetables and fruits like three weeks ago. And I'll let you know, my, my dietitian, I ate two-thirds of that. That's a good start for me. That's really, you know, broccoli and fresh fruit. That's not bad. But the idea is I need to be pointed towards freedom. Don't remind me of how I'm failing. It's just, it's, it's the more, I die when you do that. And, and if you have a problem understanding what I'm talking about right now, which should be most of you, if you're lost at this point, here's what I want to help you understand. That visceral problem, that really flesh-driven lust for food, right? Let me help you connect with it. You're driving down the road and all of a sudden you drive past the barbecue pit and you smell it. And you weren't hungry three meters prior. By the way, you know, I didn't say three feet. I'm going to Britain, so I'm trying to, you know, get the lingo. You weren't hungry three feet prior, but now something's been triggered in the and you know, God gave us saliva and salivary glands. So that when we smell meat, it makes a, a reaction that's so good. But maybe not good for me. Some of you are that way with ice cream. You pass the ice cream shop and you go into convulsions. And you can't help yourself. Some of you that way with the pizza place. You know, think about it. When, when you smell that food that you're not supposed to have, all of a sudden the body takes over. And now your brain and your will are dead. 
And that's why they call it a diet. You know, our, na our nation is doing this big debate on obesity now. And, and the interesting thing is <laughs> now it's all about the manufacturer. It's their fault, right? You know, manufacturer is, you know, uh, what was it? The mayor, of <laughs> the mayor of New York said, let's get rid of all soda, you know, because people can't control themselves. And it's the manufacturer's fault. So you cannot serve a, I mean, it didn't work. Praise God. But it, it, it didn't work. Thank God it didn't transfer across the nation. But, you know, they were going to say, you can't get a soda this big, which, okay, I understand. But maybe this big would be highly acceptable for very spiritual people needing soda. But it, it just didn't float. But the whole attitude was, we can't help ourselves. So it's the manufacturer's fault. It's interesting how we do this little game when it comes to Jesus. We do this little game when it comes to condemnation. That the world looks at Jesus sometimes, or God, as this empirical judge that is out to point out every little wrong thing that you do. And they've got the wrong view of who God is. They've got the wrong view of who Jesus is. And today, that's what we're going to look at. And now we're done talking about diets, so thank God. But, you know, it, it, it's interesting. It's, it's like calling the donut shop owner an evil man as you purchase two dozen donuts, right? It does not make sense, all right? Turn to John 8, 1 through 11, and I'm just going to go ahead and read the text, and then we'll start to break it down. Verse 1 says this. Uh, by the way, verse 53 of chapter 7 we haven't read, and it's kind of connected, and thanks to the the Swedes, we have all these numbers kind of mixed up. Um, but it says prior in verse 53, each one went to his own house. They had just finished the festival of the booths. It was done. It was over with. That's where we left off. And so each one went to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, right in the middle of all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charges to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, or go, and from now on, sin no more. Very familiar passage for those that have been in the church for a long time. There's a lot packed in here. So what are we going to focus on today? Well, we're going to focus on stone throwing. We're going to focus on stone throwing. But let me give you some background real quickly. Is if you look in your Bibles, 
Does any, first of all, does anybody have a Bible that does not have this story in your Bible? Linden, you heretic. No, I'm just kidding. No. Let me explain what's going on here, folks. Is that this, and, and many of you, if not most of you, will have a little notation uh, about this. Here's the interesting thing about this passage, is that it actually didn't even appear in the original manuscripts. Now, some of us may not know this, but, but the Bible that we have has come from letters that were written while the Holy Spirit inspired certain men to write down the words of God that He wanted to give to you and I so that we can know Him. And not only know Him, but know His will. So He's given us exactly what we need to know about Him and how to live righteously and how to pursue Him. That's what this collection of letters is all about. There's a bunch of other letters and other writings that are out there. And those really don't hold up. And one of the ways that you can test and see if it holds up is, is it part of the original manuscripts? How far back do we go? You know the game of telephone, right? And so this passage, folks, this didn't appear in any of the early manuscripts until the 5th century. So we've got a couple other areas in Scripture like this. And so what do you do with it? Why is it in our Bible then, even though it's notated? Because there's a consistency of it, and before people wrote things down, especially the Old Testament, how did they know this information about God? It was all done through oral tradition. And so the, the thinking on this is simply this. That this was part of oral tradition. We know that John didn't write this, because the way that it's written is very different than any of his other writings in this book. So John didn't even write it. In different times in history, it's been in different books. Of, of the Gospels. So it's kind of been this oral tradition that they're not exactly sure where it stemmed from, where it came from, and so listen to me carefully. It is not on par with what? Scripture. These verses are not to be taken on the same level as the Holy Scriptures because we can't verify th that they're inspired words of God. So why are we bothering with it? I'm glad you asked. We're bothering with it because it's in here and men who helped pull this canon together see a, a validity to this in the harmony of other things Jesus did. In other words, the exact things we're looking at here speak to other things he did that were very similar. And it fits. And there's an important message here but you kind of need to look at it as like an editorializing of what Scripture really says. Okay? So with that caveat, by the way, um, what would be two examples that we're going to see today in this passage that we know Jesus did? Out of Mark 12, 13 through 17, the group of Pharisees and scribes come to him to trap him. And they said, you know, uh, what do we do with our tribute? Do we need to pay Caesar or do we not pay Caesar, and they were doing so to trap him. That's exactly what's happening in, in this passage. So there's a harmonization here. There's a familiarity. Um, Jesus stating that he doesn't condemn the woman and go and sin no more. Where does that come from? John 3, we'll hear a little bit about that coming up, that Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to what? To save the world, 3.17. We also heard all about this in chapter 5 of John, where he heals the, the man at the pool of Bethesda, and the man gets up, and Jesus encounters him a couple days later in the temple again, and he tells him to what? Go and what? Sin no more. 
So we know that this message that we're going to look at right here is consistent with what Jesus taught. That's the only reason that we're touching on it today, is because it has value to the wholeness, the plurality of what Jesus teaches. So let's get into it. We've read the passage. The first point that I want to make to you today is this. Jesus fights and he wins. My best friend Kelly is a pastor over in Benicia. And when you're in high school, in the high school we grew up in, just had... On any given day, you could take odds on some WWF going on or some MMA going on next to your locker or, or whatever. And I've never seen someone so masterfully laugh himself out of a fight than my best friend Kelly. The guy could disarm or disfuse any conflict, and that's what makes him such a great pastor. I watched like three or four times. Somebody just really get irritated at him and, and, and want to fight him. And next thing you know, you know, they're sipping tea and talking with the English accent, you know, and, and it makes no sense to me. But you know what's interesting is that's a way of fighting. Because to win is to bring peace. Interestingly enough, we always equate it with, I'm going to fight you physically so that I win and you crawl back passively and you're not going to bother me anymore. That brings what? In people's minds, peace. There's more than one way to fight. And Jesus demonstrates this magically, mysteriously, and masterfully in this passage. Jesus calls out the leaders for their hypocrisy. You see, what they do is they bring this woman, they're looking for a reason to arrest him. Remember, they want him dead. They want to arrest him. So they go and they catch this woman in the act of adultery. They bring, and, and guys, I don't understand this. So many pastors talk about this. I bet you that many of you have sat underneath a pastor somewhere or heard somebody on the radio that goes on and on and on about how she was in the act and they drug her out naked and laid... What does that matter? I don't care. Uh, you guys don't need the visual anyway. The point is, is they bring this woman in front of them and she is a pawn. She is a pawn. They are using her. How do we know that? And this is why Jesus reacts the way he reacts. How do we know this? Because Jesus calls them out on their hypocrisy. Folks, last time I checked the Scripture, and last time I checked just even common sense, it takes two people to commit adultery. Why didn't they haul the guy out as well? Because in this culture, they could say just about anything they wanted to about a woman, and she would never fight back. So we'll just use her to get to him. She was never about the adultery for these guys. It was about snaring Jesus so they could arrest him and they could kill him. And Jesus knows it, and he calls them out. Folks, when you get into a war of wills with somebody, can I encourage you? Get to the root of the matter. Be wise. Start praying. Seek the Father and, and ask him what is really at the root of what's going on here. So I don't get drug into something that really is there to cause friction, cause conflict, and cause destruction. There's no benefit to it. These supposed religious leaders were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. Psalm 72, 70, it's a life verse. Jesus, or, or the Lord, God, Yahweh, called David out of the sheep pens and made him shepherd over Israel. And it says that he did that with skillful hands and with integrity. 
And in that same vein, this is who these scribes and Pharisees are supposed to be. They're using this woman. And Jesus is fed up with it. And so he calls them out. Got a little Western jive. I like it. Some backing vocals on the sermon. There had to be two people that were involved in adultery. So where's the guy? So right there and right then, Jesus knows this isn't about adultery. They were not there for spiritual reasons. They were there for political reasons. Jesus was starting to distract their power base. And they didn't like it. They believed that Jesus uh, would be caught in an impossible answer. Why? Let me explain it to you. First of all, they present the law of Moses, which God gave to Moses. It says if, if a virgin is caught in an adulterous situation, then she is to be stoned. So if he says, no, don't stone her, what is he saying about the law and God? Well, he can't be Messiah because he can't speak against God. Aha, that's one area. Now the second area is if he says she should go free, he's now breaking the Roman law, which did not allow for the Jews or for the authority, the, uh, the authoritative party, the, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, to execute anybody. Remember, it was Pilate that had to sign off on his crucifixion, right? The scribes know that they can't execute him. So what they need him to do is break the law. Uh-oh. Have you ever been in a catch-22? Have you ever had a whole gang of people create a gigantic scenario to catch you in a catch-22 in front of everybody? Most of us are like, I'm not going to debate anybody. I don't know the first thing about it. Folks, look at what Jesus does. He fights and he wins. He fights and he wins. I remember being with my sister. My niece is here with us, and she's just fantastic. If you haven't met her, you need to meet her and just give her $20 anyway. She's fantastic. My, my wife, my wife, my, my, wow, that's Freudian. My sister and I went back to visit my grandparents in Illinois when I was probably five or six and she was, let's see, ten. And I remember, it's like one of those old movies like Stand By Me or something. You're in the old town with the river and Kiefer Sutherland is the punk and, you know, all that stuff. I don't remember the name of that movie. It was a lot like that. And so these neighborhood kids didn't like us because we were out of town. And I remember being somewhere and they started throwing rocks at my sister. And so I, the five-year-old, step up to defend her and I took one right in the chest. And I'm like, we're out of here, run! Right? You know? I didn't win that war. Jesus fights and wins. It is amazing what happens here. So they're out to catch him. How does he do this? How does he disarm his attackers? He uses the pressure of truth. He uses the pressure of truth. Let me ask you, how do you fight against your enemies? What conflicts have you been sucked into? And what kind of rhetoric do you just spit out because you're caught in an emotional tug of war with somebody that will never win to bring peace? Jesus, even with these men that are His enemies, just speaks truth. And watch what happens. Let's go back to the passage. They say in verse 5, end of verse 5, so what do you say? Silence. And he gets down and he starts writing in the ground. And nobody knows what he wrote. Some people speculate maybe he started writing the Ten Commandments. 
Maybe he started writing the sins of these individuals, these priests. He just didn't respond immediately. And folks, this is drama. We just hauled a woman committing the act of adultery and plopped her down in front of you and we gave you a conundrum. Remember? Not a conundrum. We gave you a conundrum and you need to rule. You've been telling us, sitting in the temple, telling us all these high lofty ideas from your father. Okay, fine. What would you do now? Hey. Saul, we got him. Watch this. He's going down. Get the guard ready. How many of you would be hitting the panic switch? I'd just be, my mind would be scrambled trying to figure out what to say. Follow Christ's example. Just pause. Don't get too involved with the rhetoric. Get down, kind of right in the ground, and pray and think through. What is it God wants me to say? Masterful. Masterful. He uses truth to disarm his attackers. And what does he say? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Their hypocrisy was a stench to God. And Jesus saw right through it. This whole action has nothing to do with this woman. It's about your hypocrisy. And that is what I'm going to address. So, you want to act righteous? You want to act as if you hold the authority to play judge and God and executioner over this woman? Fine. Pick up a stone and throw it. I don't recommend that you necessarily do this I was out surfing one day with a friend of mine that wasn't very good at surfing. And there's some basic rules in the water. Some are for safety, some are for your own safety so you don't get beat up. And so I was kind of worn out. I'd been in for two minutes. No, I got a big 60-pound board, 10-foot, 60-pound board, so, you know, that takes a lot out of you. Um, so I went in. While I was out in the lineup, my friend Matt paddles up to me and he says, oh man, I think I just hit a kid on the inside. I'm like, what? What do you mean? Like, is the kid alive? Oh yeah, yeah, he, he's fine. I'm like, oh, alright. You know. So I'm sitting up, I've already toweled off and I'm sitting on the back of my truck watching the sets and, and here comes Matt up out of the water. I kid you not, this was like that uh, uh, Lord of the Flies scene. These junior hires start circling around Matt, and they've got sticks. And he is totally oblivious to what's going on. And I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, this is going to be a great show. <laughs> and I'm watching this, and, and they start yelling at him. And he's still oblivious to what's going on. I hope this guy never ends up like in a burglary situation, because he's going to get robbed blind. But finally he catches on, and he stops, and he's like, what? He goes, you're cool with hitting my friends? We're going to hit you. And, and so there's this big, long dialogue and conflict. And I'm sitting here watching this. 
And all of a sudden I realized, these guys are just trying to stick up for one another, and they're mad, but they're not going to attack this guy. And this is just, and so I just keep watching. And, they keep, and Matt doesn't know what to do. He does not know what to do. So his good friend, sitting up on the back of his truck, like from me to where, where the back of the room is, I just yelled, start hitting him! And Matt's eyes get like this big. And they're looking at me, and they're like, what? I go, no, 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 you got the sticks. You're wasting time. Just start beating them down. And Matt's just like, shh, I can't say that word. And what did they do? Because they weren't going to hit him in the first place. <laughs> now, Matt never spoke to me after that, and that's a bad illustration. But, you know, there are those times where you have to just understand what's going on, and Jesus got it, and he said, you who have no sin cast the first stone. What happened? This is fascinating. He bent down again on the ground and he wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, a slow movement away, a slow dissolving of the conflict. And who went first? Those that were older. And some commentators think that that's because, we don't know for sure, but, but some think that's because, you know, when you get older, you kind of see things a little bit more clearly and you understand your own sin a little bit better, and you're not this impetuous youth that gets all riled up. So the older ones see they're not going to win this one. And they start walking away. Jesus fights, and He wins. And He uses truth, the truth of the matter, to dissolve the situation. How do you fight against your enemies? How do you fight against your enemies? Turn to 2 Corinthians 10. And we're going to look at this real briefly. And, and you know, this is, I, I've got scriptures that I could help you with in, to get an idea of how to do that. But I wanted to find something that was applicable, that you could see happening in real time, an example, but was the biblical principles at work. And so uh, I spent a long time kind of searching for this and came up. Lord led me to it, and I think it's good. Second Corinthians, what, what did I say? Ten, thank you. Second Corinthians 10. You know, when you have this electronic stuff and you're talking at the same time, you can get easily confused. So, I believe we're starting in verse 5, am I correct? I didn't say, let me go back and look. Sorry, I was on a train of thought and, and uh, I lost my passage. Verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to look at 18. All right? Verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to look at 18 as well. So Paul says this, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Remember, he's putting Christ forward. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. What's going on here? There are factions within the Corinthian church that are calling out Paul, that are causing conflict, that are, that are uh, creating war with Paul. And so he's having to write to that and address it. And so how does he handle this? How does he diffuse the situation? How does he treat his stone throwers? So he says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
take it out of the flesh and put it into the realm of God. That's one of the things that you can do immediately. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against what? The knowledge of God. I will hold up the truth, and because I hold up the truth, unless your thing is true, it's just not going to stand. This is exactly what Jesus did, and that's why they walked away one by one by one. He disarmed the stone throwers. And he says, and to take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Same team is what Paul is saying. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you, what? Up, not tearing you down. Not condemnation, but for building you up. Being a spiritual shepherd. Do you see the contrast between what Paul does and what these Pharisees and scribes were trying to do? Go down to verse 18 and it says this, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Folks, if you're in a struggle, if you're facing a stone thrower, let the Lord fight the battle for you. Use godly wisdom. Let the Lord fight for you. Jesus turns to the woman. And this is my favorite part of the entire story. And he says what? Woman, where are they? Have you been in that position? Have you been crying out to God because people are throwing stones at you? And if you hold up the truth and the freedom that is Christ, can you get to this point where Jesus would simply turn to you and say, your stone throwers, where are they? Because I'll fight that battle for you. But some of us want to fight the battle ourselves. And that's why we're entrenched. And we're losing. And we're miserable. And we're being destroyed. Let's talk to the second point here. Condemnation and sin. Condemnation means to judge. That's all it means. And, and as we looked in John 3, it's, it's basically the same root as the word that's used in, in John 8 here about condemn. Jesus chooses in this situation not to judge the woman. Why? The answer is found in John 3.17. Please turn there if you will. And John 3.17 is located right next to what famous verse? John 3.18, that is correct. There's my gallery again. So we, a lot of us know John 3.16 and we have a deep appreciation for it, but we've lost track of what he continues to say. 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now remember, this point is condemnation and sin. Okay? Jesus says to her, I do not, what? Condemn you. But then He says, go, just like He said to the paralytic at the, at the uh, pool of Bethesda, and do what? Sin no more. So a lot of us like to hold on to this idea that Jesus is just this loving guy that just wants to give us great freedom and, and He loves us. And, and, you know, who are you to judge? You're not my judge. No, you're right. What you're about to find out is an amazing fact. You know, my diet 
is judged by one thing. This. You don't need to tell me that my diet stinks. It's before me every day. Literally, by two inches. What you're about to hear in John 3.17 gives a little bit more of a spiritual reflection on that concept. Why did Jesus tell her, I do not condemn you? Listen. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not what? Condemned. But whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already. You know, a lot of people will ask this question, and maybe they'll bring it Wednesday night. If God is so good, why is God going to send people to hell? Mmm, that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. The right question is this. Since sin exists, sin requires a penalty. That's just the way it is. God was good and He sent His Son as a free will offering to pay the penalty for me so I can have eternal life. If that gift is given to me and all I have to do is have the faith to believe in it, here's the question. Why would I condemn myself to to death? You see, the proprietor of King's Donuts didn't build this. This built this. I am self-condemned. I am self-condemned. That is exactly what Scripture says. Now, if God said, hey, Adam and Eve started sin, brought sin into the world, and pretty much you're done. And there's no way that you can get past that. Okay, now you could say God is condemning you. But that's not the way God has set it up. And as he turns to the woman, just like Paul said, he seeks that she would be restored He seeks what is good and godly for her. She already knows, does she not, what her sin is? She knows. We have somebody walk through the door that's struggling in sin, which would probably be most of us. Do we not know our failures and our problems already? We do. So how do we succeed? Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but He came to save the world. Turn to Romans 8, if you will. Paul says it again. Jesus said it in John 3. John records it for us. And now Paul is saying the same thing. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Amen? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Likeness. And for sin, He condemned sin. Not us, but condemned sin that is in the flesh. He's fought the battle. Sin is condemned because of the work of Christ. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, is that pizza I smell? Those of us who walk according to the flesh, what? I lost my place. (laughs) All right. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is what? Is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. For you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. How do we deal with condemnation? We deal with it through grace. We deal with it through grace. Let me give you some real basic helps with this. The flesh is that part of me that gives in to my lust of pizza when I'm trying to diet and eat healthy. You get that part, right? It's that part, it's the old part that when, when Christ died on the cross, that part's been crucified, but I give way to it. I don't have to, but I give way to it. Before Christ came into my life, I was in bondage to it. But now through Christ, I've been given the opportunity and the freedom, spiritually, to set my mind on Christ and to live free from those bondages that hold me back, that self-condemnation. The reality is that sin almost cost her her life. Jesus is about making us alive. And unless he reminds us not to sin, we'll be confused and miss the life he has for us. She already stood condemned. She's self-condemned. And Jesus loves her. She was not the story. It was the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes. He's dealt with her and now, uh, dealt with them, and now she stands before him. And he deals with her. And he says, I don't condemn you. That doesn't mean she didn't do something wrong. And sometimes that's how we read it. He's saying, I'm not going to condemn you. I came to give you life. And life to the full. But then he says what? He puts a tailor on it. Go and sin no more. That's the part that we're responsible for. So how do we do this? How do we do it? How do we go and sin no more? By the way, is it ever okay for someone to judge? We talked about this two weeks ago. Uh, no, we shouldn't judge with hypocrisy, like the Pharisees and the scribes. But yes, it is okay to judge in the sense of shepherding, of trying to encourage one another towards righteous things. Galatians uh, 2.11 says, Paul says, literally, I opposed Peter to his face in front of everyone because he stood condemned. He doesn't say, I condemned Peter. Peter already stood condemned for his public sin. And so uh, Paul is giving him the opportunity to make things right publicly because he has sinned publicly. Paul is trying to restore. In Galatians 6.1, he says, You who are spiritual should seek to restore those who have sinned, those who need reconciliation. But he says, be careful that you are not drug into that sin. You see, the concept here is that we would restore someone to life, not condemnation. So this issue of judging is a sticky wicket. And my biggest encouragement to you is what Christ says, make sure that you've got your stuff fairly well together before you try to condemn somebody else. 
Because you trying to condemn, me trying to condemn somebody and tell them, hey, you need to get your act together. You're living a sinful life. That's not how Jesus would say it. We would recognize the sin. Christ would recognize the sin. He would turn to this rich man who says, what must I do to get the entire kingdom of God? And Jesus starts saying, well, what have you done? Well, I've, I've, I've done this commandment, this commandment, this commandment. Well, that's pretty good. I tell you what, just go sell all your possessions and you'll be there. What was this guy's problem? What was his sin? Self-condemnation of greed. Jesus didn't say, you know what, buddy? You're greedy and you're covetous. And until you get that figured out, don't even talk to me. It's not what he said. He said, hey, tell you what. Let me have you move forward. Go sell all your stuff. And then you'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that man stands self-condemned. Because he was more about himself than he truly was about pursuing the kingdom of heaven. So now that we've covered that, how do we go and sin no more? And how am I going to tell you that in five minutes? Well, let me break it down real easily for you. How do we drop the stones? How do we drop the stones? Number one, have a Christ-like attitude. Set your mind on Christ. We've already seen that out of Romans 8. We are to work towards restoration, not punitive attitudes. Not punishment. All right? That's how you drop the stones, and you don't commit sin in this approach. Number two, understand what sin is. You know, here's the deal with sin, is that sin is sin is sin. It, it, it is moving away from God's standard. God has a standard. So if I don't know the standard, I'm off the hook, right? Right? You've heard me talk about this, right? You know, I can be raised in Montana where I can drive whatever speed I want. And then I move to California and I drive whatever speed I want. And the policeman pulls me over and says, have a nice day, $400 later. And I say, that, well, what is this? Oh, our laws say that, well, I don't know your laws. <laughs> Too bad. You're still, what? Guilty. And not because he said it and not because the judge said it. Because why? Because I'm self-condemned. I broke the law. Now, we can talk about grace and mercy and all that stuff later. But the issue is we need to understand what sin is. You want to know where to start if you struggle with this idea? Go to Matthew chapters 5 through 8. Just start there. The Beatitudes. That paints a great picture of God's holy standard. It's not the whole standard, but that'll be a good start. And then be a student of understanding God's knowledge. Be a student of understanding what His holy standard is so that we're not committing sin. Whether we just full-blown shake our fist at God and do a transgression against Him, say, I don't care, I'm in rebellion, I'm going to do what I want to do. Or if we commit sin with, like, hamartia, which is just missing the mark. It's like throwing a dart at a dartboard and you hit the wall. Alright? Just because you don't know how to do it very well. Both are still sin. Both separate us from God. So know what sin is. Number three, draw near to God and resist the devil. James 4, 7-8. through 8. Look at that scripture. It's a great passage on how to remove yourself out of a pattern of sin. How do I do that? How do I do that? Folks, some of us, I'm not going to help myself if I continue to drive by King's Donuts every morning and I say, hey, I don't need any more donuts. 
you know, that's something I don't need to do. And I just keep driving right down Clayton Boulevard when my office is right here. That is not the direct route to my office. All right? And if I've got a meeting downtown, I can take Concord Boulevard, not Clayton Boulevard. But there are those days where I'm like, I'm not going to get a donut. I have the will to do this. I can go down Clayton Boulevard just fine. And I get closer and closer and closer. And I put myself in position to blow it. Some of us do that spiritually all the time, don't we? So stop it. There you go. There's words of wisdom. Stop it. Don't put yourself in position to do that. It says, draw near to God and resist the devil. There's a reason why some of those donuts are called devil's food cakes. Walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, Romans 8. He has given you the opportunity. If you know Him, the Spirit of God is within you. You choose daily who you will serve. So if you choose to walk in the Spirit, chances are really good you're not going to be out there committing a lot of sin. If I make it all about me and what I want to do and disregard the Spirit, now I'm walking in the flesh, which is exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans 8. Write down Romans 8. That's going to be a big help for you to avoid sin. Practice Romans 8. Have the proper mind of God. Don't be the condemner. Be the restorer. Because even in a spiritual emphasis, you can sin. You can sin in this self-righteous indignation effort to be godly. We are all self-condemned. You know, it's not Al the pizza maker's fault that I'm unhealthy. And it's not Sony PlayStation's fault that I'm out of shape. But if I change my mindset and my focus on what is good, the results will speak for themselves. How do you disarm a stone thrower? You use the truth. You use the truth. Let me close this morning in prayer for our offering. If you're visiting today, hi. We're glad you're here. And you are welcome anytime to be here. Um, you're welcome Wednesday night, 6.30 to 8 o'clock. Have a, a wonderful summer planned out for that. You have a little flyer in your bulletin for it. Many of you may be here today in honor of our baptism, which is going to happen, oh, in just an hour. We've got about five of our bap baptizing people in the room. And in about an hour, we're going we're gonna to be hearing their testimonies. And you're going to be amazed. Don't miss it. And when you leave, get the map to my house or just memorize in your head. Go right, first le left, it's spacious living. All right? Got to be spacious when you eat that many donuts. All right. Let me pray for the offering this morning. I pray that the Lord goes with you in your efforts and that you understand how to disarm those stone throwers in your life. And even more so that you understand that Jesus' role is not to condemn us. His role is to lead us in freedom and that which is good. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Let me pray. Father, looking at this story that was passed through oral tradition is a fascinating story. I can see the value of putting it in as, as a almost a commentary or an editorial. It is consistent with who your Son is. It is consistent with your message. 
It has value. And while it's not Scripture, it still helps shape and remind us of who Christ is, who we are, what our needs are, and how to live righteously. Lord, help us to know how not to throw stones, and secondly, how to defend against stone throwers. Let us focus on walking by the Spirit and not in the flesh. We praise You, Father. We thank You for the gifts that we are about to receive. We ask that You would preside over them, that You would use them to Your glory, Your effort. Thank You for the work that's done through this local body. Let each giver give with joy in their heart, knowing that You will bless them accordingly. Thank You, Lord God, for this day. To Your glory. Amen.